been a fast trip. We got here last night. No, where did we get here? Yesterday. Yesterday, right? Yeah. We um, got up about four o'clock in the morning and flew yesterday. And we did our own conf- We were at our own conference and we're there half the night. And so I don't, I've lost track of time. Sorry. My wife doesn't let me throw stuff on the floor like that. Uh, but um, yeah, we just had our own conference and we just, it was so exciting. We the last night we um, we prayed for people that had metal like in their you know like a rod in their back or metal in their arm or whatever and really cool. And uh, at the end of the the session, we were praying for people that had metal bills. Said hey, if you have if uh, God dissolved the metal in your body and you can tell, come up and give a testimony. The first lady to come up, she had about a two inch wide and about a seven inch long plate in her left uh, uh, um, elbow and, and arm and while they prayed for her you could feel the plate the people who were around her were screaming you could feel the plate and as they prayed for her the plate dissolved she had two screws that you could feel on her elbow they disappeared and she would you know there's a you know uh, yeah you can share the testimony but you know how different it is when you're there right and the person's like, because you can like, well, maybe, maybe that didn't really happen. But when the person's sharing the testimony, you're like, oh, dude, that was amazing. So um, that was, it's just, it's so cool to see God do something that's like completely and totally impossible. How many of you ever prayed for, you know, you'd want to be a miracle worker. How many want to be a miracle worker? How many of you have ever wanted to pray, how many of you have ever prayed to be a miracle worker and then you find out that you end up in a situation where you need a miracle? That's happened to me over and over. It's like, Jesus, I want to do miracles. And then all of a sudden, I need one. <laughs> and I'm like, Lord, why am I in this situation? He's like, I thought you wanted to be a miracle worker. If you're anything like me, I want to be a miracle worker in the life of other people. How about you? I don't want to need a miracle. I want other people who need a miracle to get, heal, you know, to get their miracles. So anyway, I, I hate the way that works now. So I don't, I don't pray that anymore. I I just pray, Lord, just help. You got to be careful because you can pray stupid prayers. You know, have you ever prayed those prayers like, Lord, kill me? (laughs) Then you start to die and you're like, Lord, I'm dying. He said, you said kill you. I was just telling uh, Pastor Paul that we were doing an interview for TV or uh, webcast, I think. And and, uh, about three and a half years ago, I prayed this prayer. I was reading in the in the Psalms where David said, expand my heart. And I'm like, expand my heart? What does that mean? You know, you ever read those, like, expand my heart? So I'm like, so I'm reading it, and I said, Lord, I, what does expand my heart mean? You know, because that verse grabbed me. Like, expand my heart. He said, and David was asking me to expand his heart because he didn't want to have authority over people he had no compassion for. And, um, you know, and our influence has been increasing pretty dramatically lately, and I said, oh, my goodness, so I said, Lord, expand my heart. Lord, I don't want to have, I don't want to have authority over people I don't have any compassion for. <laughs> then I went through the dark night of the soul about six months later. In fact, Pastor Paul actually helped me through it. <laughs> and I was like, what am I, what's, what's going on in my life? You, the Lord said, you said you wanted me to expand your heart, that you didn't want to have authority over anyone that you didn't have compassion. I thought, I, I meant narrow the amount of people I have authority over. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I can do less. <laughs> anyway, well, that's bad. 
Um, let me give away a few things. This is called Fear is Not Your Friend. And how many know that uh, you can always tell how much faith you have by how much fear you have? Because fear is just faith in the wrong kingdom. How many of you know that faith works in both kingdoms? If you have faith in the kingdom of God, you have righteousness, peace, joy, you know, the whole trip. But if you have faith in the wrong kingdom, you have anxiety, torment, depression. That's a sign you got faith in the wrong kingdom. That's never happened to me. But I've heard of people who this has happened to. Anybody, anyone like this? Okay, I don't know how you do this here. Do you throw them? Don't throw them. Okay, Paul, Ken, come and do this for me. This is called From, from Poppers to... Oh, by the way, let me introduce... This is Paul Manwaring, one of our staff. Would you stand, Paul? This is Paul Manwaring, one of our pastors, my very close friend and one of the most brilliant men I know. This is Ken, and he's one of our staff and also a very brilliant man. Good looking. Sorry, ladies, married. And uh, just making sure that we know, you know, want them lusting after you. Uh, it's called From Paupers to Princes. Um, how many of you know that um, the kingdom within you becomes the kingdom around you? You know, if you take a pauper and you put him in a palace, he'll make a palace a prison. But if you take a, a, a prince and you put him in a prison, he'll make the prison a palace. That's the story of Joseph, isn't it? So you always create the environment around you that you have within you. Or that you think you have within you. So who would like to have that? You can give that away. This is called Life is Messy. And uh, how many of you know that if you want a supernatural life, the Bible says, Proverbs says, that where there's no oxen, the manger is clean. But much increase comes with the oxen. How many know what's in the manger when the oxen are there? So if you want a supernatural life, you're going to need a pooper scooper ministry to go along with it. I know, people, people want... You know, let me just give a little... Let me just, let me just say this. That in the, I was in the business world for 20 years... In the business world, typically, like in a manufacturing, like let's say that uh, Apple computer, they have a manufacturing department and they have a research and development department. In the church, we only have a manufacturing department. Our goal is zero defects. And we wonder why we never create new things. If you superimpose the core values of the manufacturing department over the research and development department, you don't develop anything. That was just, wasn't that a good word? Just, you stay right there. I'm going to need you tonight. Just encourage me. I think that our character should be the manufacturing core value. We should go for zero defects. But when we're learning to move with the Holy Spirit, if you really want to have a supernatural ministry, those core values are not going to work. Like, if you want a supernatural ministry, you're going to have a mess. You need a mess to have a message. You need a test to have a testimony. How many of you have ever seen childbirth before? Because, you know, 1 Corinthians 14 says, let all things be done decently in order. How many of you ever been to childbirth? Yeah, we took Lamaze classes. You know what Lamaze is? Lamaze, I figured it out later. It's an ancient Hebrew word that means, hey, stupid, what the heck are you doing in here? Because it has nothing to do with helping your wife Give childbirth. 
And you know, you have, you, you create a focal point. You, have anyone ever done Lamas? You get a little focal point and then you help them breathe. We had a Snickers bar for a focal point. Yeah, eight hours into the labor. My wife had 28-hour labor with our first child. Eight hours into the labor, I ate the focal point. <laughs> then when our child finally came, you know, she was in there sideways. I don't know what they call that. They were, she was in there sideways. They had to use salad tongs to get her turned around. Seriously, they put the salad tongs in there and grabbed her head and pulled her around. And when she came out, you know, she looked like I had been in a car accident. Seriously. And the, and, the, and the doctor looks at me and he goes, do you want to cut the cord? I said, what the heck did we pay you for? <laughs> then he hands me this baby. It's like the nurse does. And I said, man, I waited nine months for this. I can wait 15 minutes while you wash her up. <laughs> I passed out at the sight of blood. I kept passing out. The doctor kept waking me up. The only reason we knew we kept the right part is one part was crying. And God, God calls that decently and in order. So, you know, if you want to give birth to something in the spirit, it could get ugly. Sorry, I have so much stuff. Supernatural Ways of Royalty. I wrote this book. I really like it. I read it all the time. It's my favorite book. I agree with almost all of it. Bill wrote two chapters. Ken, you're not doing a very good job. What's that? There's more in the bookstore. Yeah, go in the bookstore and buy them. And this is called Sexual Revolution, The Naked Truth About Moral Purity. <laughs> oh, man. You know, I believe that we're supposed to start a new moral revolution. You know, when God said, be fruitful and multiply, how many of you know he gave you a sex drive? Let me try this again. How many of you know he gave you a sex drive? Who, who gave the sex drive to the rest of you? <laughs> Let me try this again. When God said, be fruitful and multiply, how many know it's him, 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 he? Gave you a sex drive. How many of you know that? Okay. Here's the question. What does it mean to have a sex drive? I believe it means you want to have sex with somebody. If you have a different definition, I'd like to hear it. And listen, when, when, when young people, you know, it's like we, we raised four teenagers. And when our, like when our daughters, you know, they woke up one morning, they got their equipment. We're like, we better have the talk. You know the talk? And what happens when, when, when young people become teenagers, we, oftentimes in, in, in religious cultures, we, we teach them to pretend it isn't really happening. We teach them like, you know, something's wrong with you. And the goal isn't to get rid of your sex drive. The goal is to learn to manage your, your appetite. We need to teach people how to manage their appetites. And you still have to manage your appetite once you get married, because you have to manage it towards one person, right? Anyway, just a thought. It's just, I've, at least I'm having one. <laughs> so maybe we should pray on that note. <laughs> Do you know in Jewish culture, I'm stuck. 
I'm stuck. I'm sorry. I'm stuck. In Jewish culture, you know, weddings lasted a week. That's why Jesus made gallons of wine instead of pints. Plus, he brought his disciples. And, and do you know that weddings lasted a week, and they would celebrate for a week. And the way that a, wedding, a Jewish wedding worked is they would, uh, they would exchange vows, much like we do. And then the bride and groom would go into the bridal chamber. The bridal chamber was typically a curtained room. And everybody would wait outside. <laughs> no. So the, the ladies were like, no. I uh, see why that tradition didn't last the test of time. And they would consummate the marriage. You know, consummate the marriage? And everybody, there was still no celebration. Then they would take the sheet that should have blood on it, and they would throw it over the bridal chamber wall. And when they blew it, when they, when they threw it, blew it, when they threw it over the bridal chamber wall, the celebration began. And there would be little children there, all the way to, to obviously, to old adults. In other words, when you're, you have your three-year-old seeing this bloody sheet. In other words, in... Jewish people had a culture, they didn't have a talk. So from the time you were little, you learned that your virginity was something that you saved. The reason why you have a sex drive years before God wants you to have sex inside of covenant is because the value of your virginity is in the blood, sweat, and tears it takes to get it from the battlefield all the way to the honeymoon suite. So the greater your sex drive, how many of you know anyone can give away something expensive, but only people who understand sacrifice can give away something valuable. So when you lay with your lover, you have something to give that you had to fight to keep. That's why the, a woman has a hymen, because God wanted children to be born out of covenant, so he provided the blood. We don't teach people any of that. We're like, you're going to get AIDS. Something terrible is going to happen. You're going to go blind. <laughs> and we need to teach people, listen, it's really hard to create a positive with a negative. It's really important that we teach our young people, listen, you have a treasure, a trophy, and the goal is to get this trophy from the battlefield all the way to the honeymoon suite. So on the night that you lay with your lover, you have something you had to fight to keep. That value of the trophy is in the game. That's a good word right there. We need a moral revolution. Okay, changing gears. Now we're praying. Jesus, help us. Help us. And I believe in baptism. Listen, you'll be a witness. I walked on water. Okay. Holy Spirit, we just pray right now that you would just release on us something good. <laughs> Whatever you want. Just something that would be positive. And, and, and bring joy to people and happiness forever after and all that stuff. Lord, just help me to help these people know I'm right. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, Lord. I want to talk to you about, I, um, I actually, when I was here last time, this has been about three years ago maybe that I was here last I'll talk to you about epic season changes, and I, I want to kind of actually take off from that message. I know it's been three years, and I hope you remember it. It was so profound, I'm sure that you can remember every point. So I won't repeat the last point I made four years ago. That was really powerful. 
But I, I, wanna, I just want to talk to you about this transition that we're going through. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and hopefully a little bit about what it looks like. <laughs> Shut up. Okay, so. <laughs> How many know that Jesus said, I will build my church? The gates of hell won't prevail against it. It's funny because Jesus said, I'll build my church, you extend the kingdom. 127 times he said, preach the kingdom, extend the kingdom, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, say the kingdom's come near you. He said, I'll build the church, you extend the kingdom. Isn't it weird that we build the church and wonder who's extending the kingdom? That's strange, isn't it? You know, um, I just finished this book called Heavy Rain, and it's a book about cultural transformation. And so I did some research because when you write things down on paper people take you seriously (laughs) i figured out through writing six other books that people actually read the books and then they correct you they send you these little emails like when you said that that isn't true well i thought it was when i said it (laughs) then you have to do all these edits So when I, was, when I was writing this book, I did some research in it, and I, I found something out. Do you know that the cities that have the greatest, no, start over, American cities that have the greatest Christian church-going population have the worst social statistics in our country, with the exception of five cities? Okay, l- let me make sure that you know what I just said. The more people that go to church on a Sunday morning, the worse the social statistics are in a, in a city. That should trouble you. If it doesn't, then we've figured out what the trouble is. And so I was preaching, I've been preaching for a long time on um, the fact that, in fact, why don't you just turn to John chapter something? Just turn anywhere. It's all really good. Five. John chapter five. And uh, it is really easy to preach here. This feels like home. I'm serious. I, I, I love, you know, I've, 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 I don't know, I've been in 12 countries this year. I love traveling. I love to preach, actually. Like, I would stay home more except for the, I don't get enough time to preach at home. But I love, I love to preach. Oh, I, lo- I love to preach all over the world, but I really love being home. Because when you're home, people just know you. And you don't have to like, you don't have to explain yourself. Like, if I say something that can be meant four different ways, my people know me. So they know, well, he must have meant that. But when you preach on the road, you have to go, I didn't mean this, this, or this. Because they crucify you after one session, you know. And I'm not very careful, so I'll have to be better. So John chapter 5, I, I started preaching this um, a couple of years ago. Um, verse 1, after these things... There was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is in Hebrew called Bethesda, having five porticles. Everybody say five porticles. And these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, withered, waiting for the waters for the angel uh, to be stirred. For the, the angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons, everybody say certain seasons, into the pool and stirred up the water. And whoever then first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease in which they were afflicted. And I want to stop right there because um, the rest of it's a really great story about the man who gets healed. But one day I'm reading that 
chapter, and you know how this happens to you. All the, when you read your Bible, have you ever, you're, you're reading along and then something jumps out at you, and you, you, don't, you often even don't know what it means. But you're like, well, that's amazing. I wonder what that means. And so one day I'm reading about uh, John, uh, the Gospel of John, which is my favorite gospel, and I, I've probably read hundreds, maybe thousands of times since I've been uh, saved. And I'm reading that chapter, and I know that story really well. I, it's one of those stories you could actually turn your brain off. You know, you don't even have to turn your brain off because I, I know the story. I know what's going to happen next. I've seen the movie over and over. And so I'm reading that, those, those verses, and, and suddenly the fact that the pool has five porticles jumps out at me. And I'm thinking, well, that's kind of strange for John to mention that the pool has five porticles. First of all, it's kind of strange because John's the one that said that if all the miracles that Jesus did were written down, the world couldn't contain the books. So I'm reading that and I'm thinking, if John makes comments that seem insignificant, they must not be insignificant because he's the one that said I had to limit what, what I told about Jesus down to a, a, you know, a lot less words because the books couldn't contain the, all that Jesus did just in three years. So I'm reading that about the five porticles and... And I started thinking, you know, there's something about these five porticles that actually means five coverings over the pool. And I'm thinking, isn't it, isn't it odd that John doesn't tell us hardly anything else about the pool? I mean, you know, you can't read that, that chapter and go, well, and get a picture of what the pool looked like. You don't know how big it was, if it had a fountain. In it. I mean, you don't know anything about the pool except for it had five coverings. And I was thinking, you know, I was, I was thinking like this, you know, if you were a witness on an accident... And the officer came up and said, did you witness this accident? And you said, yes, I did. You know, those two cars that got in an accident? Yes, I did. Your officer, I noticed that they both had hubcaps. The officer, you would expect the officer to think that there was something significant about the hubcaps because they had lots of other things that you didn't bother to mention. So I'm reading that one day, and, and, I, and I felt like the Holy Spirit said that the Pool of Bethesda app. I mean, represented, represented the church, and that the five the five porticles represented the fivefold ministry, and that the fivefold ministry, when the fivefold ministry goes from emerging, you know, now we have apostles and prophets, and not just you know pastors, evangelists, and teachers. When the fivefold ministry goes from emerging to merging into one pool that it's going to create strategic alliances with heavenly allies. And angels are going to begin to help us. And we're going to see miracles we've never seen before in the church. So I had been preaching that for about six months, that the Lord is going to cause the fivefold ministry. Listen, and I I really believe this is a now word also, even though I'm, I'm going to talk about something else in just a minute, but I really believe that the Lord wants the fivefold ministry to learn how to work together. Like it isn't just about having fivefold ministers, but it's about defining their roles, figuring out how they interact, figuring out how they govern. Are you with me? So I was, I was just sharing and preaching that for about six months, that the Lord was causing the fivefold ministry to, to, to come to one pool, to pour into one pool, to cover one pool, and that the angels were going to help us, and we were going to see miracles we've never seen before. So one Sunday morning, we were together, we pray Sunday morning before our services, at 7.30 in the morning, we get together and share testimonies, and then we pray. And so we're all together, and there's about 30 or 40 of us, and we're kind of in a circle, and we're praying, and you know, you guys probably have your custom, we have our custom, 
And we've been together a long time. I've been with Bill 32 years. And so we're, we're praying, and, and somebody's, somebody next to me is praying. And, and in, our, in our church, you know when, it's, when, when the next person's supposed to pray because they start shambling louder than everybody else. So when you want to pray, you're amening the person who's praying, and you're like, shadamayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayayay
I pray this morning that Bethel Church would be like Ezekiel's river. Now, when you don't know anything, you don't want everybody else to know you don't know. So what I've learned to do is you just say it again with a different emphasis. So I pray this morning that Bethel Church and I'm gonna say, would be like Ezekiel's river. There's a river in Ezekiel. <laughs> there's a river in Ezekiel and there's trees by the river. And I pray that, that, there, that there would be a river in Ezekiel at Bethel Church. There would be a river. Ezekiel's river would come to Bethel Church and the trees would grow. I'm serious. I have no idea what I'm talking about. None. <laughs> you know, and everybody's waiting. Like, you don't usually pray two lines, you know? Because there isn't nobody else shambhan yet. So I'm like, I know the floor is still mine. So I just said it again. Ezekiel's River, Bethel Church. And, I, and, and then, you know, finally, you know, somebody shambhaled. I'm like, oh. <laughs> thank God, because you can only emphasize it, you know, a few different ways before people figure out, like, you don't know what the heck you're talking about. So I leave there that morning, and when I'm going home, I'm thinking, I said, Lord, I don't know anything about Ezekiel's River. So I look up the river, Ezekiel's River, and, and um, it's in Ezekiel 47, by the way. <clears throat> I have read it since. I want to read it to you. But before I do... I want to tell you what the Lord told me. He said, the modern world has never seen the true power of an apostle because apostles have emerged in a pastorate. Now you have no idea what I'm talking about, right? Okay. The modern world has never seen the true power of an apostle because apostles have emerged in a pastorate. So, I said, what does that mean? He said, you've been saying that the fivefold ministry, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, are the government of God. But he said, you're wrong. The fivefold ministry is not the government of God. They're the governors of God. He said, the gov government is the structure that governors govern in, and leadership is the art of governing. Let me say it again. Government is the structure that governors govern in, and leadership is the art of governing. Are you following me? No. Okay. Let me give you an example. In our city, we built, they built Shasta College in our city, and the contractor, when he was all done, he put no sidewalks in. He planted lawn all the way around the, the campus, and he waited for one year to see where the students and the faculty wore out the lawn. And where they wore out the lawn, they poured sidewalks so that the sidewalks facilitated the destiny of the, of the faculty and the students. Government is the structure. It's the roads. It is the highways that governors govern in. Let me give you an example. In our country, 
our President of the United States is also Commander-in-Chief. And when, when our forefathers wrote our Constitution, you know, we came out of a monarchy. Sorry, Paul. <clears throat> Paul's English. To be careful. Because we whipped them so bad. <laughs> we, came, we came out of a monarchy, and we didn't, we didn't want another monarchy, so we created a democracy, which I understand it's a democratic republic, it's more complicated than this, but basically we wanted government by the people for the people. So we didn't want someone to be all-powerful. But our forefathers said, listen, democracy is a great form of government in peace, in peacetime. But if we were ever attacked on our own shores, democracy moves too slow, the process is too slow, the decision-making process is too slow to win a war on our own shores. So they put something in called what? Martial law. Now, in martial law, the governor, the president, who's also commander-in-chief, are you with me? He wears two hats. Probably because our first general, our first president was, was George Washington, who was our greatest general. So probably why our, our president is also commander-in-chief. So, in a time of war on our own shores, when Congress declares martial law, the same person remains president. Are you with me? But what changes? The governmental structure. And the Lord said to me that if, you re- if the governmental structure remained a democracy during a, sh- a war on our shores, it wouldn't matter if we had the best general in the world. He could, still, he could not win a war because the government, the governmental structure would... See, government is supposed to empower your strength and cover your weakness. But what happens if your government exposes your weakness and, empower, and or empowers your weakness and, and covers your strength? Are you with me? In other words, we couldn't win a war because the governmental structure doesn't allow for our commander-in-chief to operate in a way that is strategic. I don't know if you're getting what I'm saying. Okay, now, a pastorate is a form of government. It's the form of government that pastors pastor in. An apostleship is the form of government that apostles lead in. Are you with me? Okay, now, the reason why I'm telling you this is because when the Lord told me about Ezekiel's river, I had been preaching the pool of Bethesda, remember, for six months. And the Lord said to me, the pool of Bethesda is a pastorate. And Ezekiel's river is an apostleship. It's a metaphor. Have I lost you completely? Or am I boring you? Okay, so let's read Ezekiel 47. Then he brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house towards the east, for the house faced the east, and the water was flowing from down under. That's around Australia. From down under, from the right side of the house, from the south of the altar. And he brought me out by the way of the north gate, and he led me around the outside of the outer gate by the way of the gate which faces east, and behold, water was trickling from the south side. And when the man went out towards the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits, and he's led through the water, water reaching his ankles. 
And he measured again a thousand, and he led me through the water, water reaching his knees. And again he measured a thousand, and he led me through the water, water reaching his loins. And again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that no one could ford. Say, no one could ford. For the water had risen. Say that. Enough water swimming, a river that no one could ford. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? And then he brought me back to the bank of the river. Now when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river, there were many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, These waters go down to the eastern region. They go down to Arbroth. They go down towards the sea, being made to flow into the sea. And the water of the sea becomes fresh. Everybody say fresh. That word fresh is the word healed. Same word healed. It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. Everybody say live. And there will be many fish there for the waters go there and the others become fresh. Everybody say they become fresh. So that everything will live. Everybody say everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that the fishermen will stand beside it from, I can't read those names, from there to the place of the spreading of the nets. And their fish will be according to their kinds like the fish of the great sea very many. And its swamps and, sw- and marshes will not become fresh, for they will be left for salt. And here we go. By the river on its banks, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, their fruit will not fail, they will bear fruit every month, because their water flows from the sanctuary. Everybody say, the water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. Now, I, w- I want you to follow me. Pastors, we call everybody pastor. If they lead a church, they're a pastor. If they work at a church, they're a pastor or they're a janitor. It's the two roles we have. You're the pastor or the janitor. If you lead the church, you're the pastor. It doesn't matter if you're a five-fold minister, you're a pastor. And we call everybody pastor in our church too. So, I, I, but, so when I talk about pastor, I'm not talking about the way we use the word pastor. I'm talking about the way the Bible uses the word pastor. Are you with me? Pastors gather. Remember Jesus said that the, that the shepherd went out and, and, the, and looked for the sheep that, lost, that left the 99? What do pastors do? They gather. In other words, the pool of Bethesda that we just read about, it is, remember I said that a pastorate is the type of government that pastors pastor in? Think about it. In the pool of Bethesda, if you want to get healed, you come to the what? You come to the pool. You want to get delivered, you come to church. You with me? You want to get healed, you come to church. You want to get delivered, you come to church. You have a marriage problem, you come to church. You need to get saved, you come to church. The goal of a pastorate is you come to church. But think about it. The word apostle... In fact, maybe it'd be good for you to understand the word apostle. When Jesus, when he changed, when he, when he promoted his learners to leaders, it's interesting that he didn't call them priests, or he didn't call them prophets, or he didn't call them patriarchs, or he didn't call them rabbis, because those were all words that described spiritual leadership in the Old Testament. But Jesus takes a word out of secular culture. The word apostle was a a Roman general. Actually, the Greeks developed the idea. And what what happened is the Romans were conquering land. You know, they were kind of like Hitler. They were conquering land, 
And like they'd go, they'd conquer one city, then they'd go on to another city and conquer that city, and they'd go on to another city and conquer that city. And what they found is, as they conquered cities and they'd come back to the city, let's say the first city they conquered, the people would be back to their old ways. And the Romans, you know the saying, when you're in Rome you do, as the Romans do. That saying came out of that era. And so the Romans said, listen, why are we conquering land but we're not culturizing people? So they developed these envoys, and at the head of those envoys were generals, Roman generals. And those Roman generals that conquered land and culturized people, not all Roman generals were called apostles, but the Roman generals that conquered land and culturized people were called apostles. And what they do is they'd send out these Roman generals with the armies, but behind the army would be politicians, would be teachers, would be philosophers, so that as they conquered land, they would culturize the people to the Roman ways. Are you with me? Until when you're in Rome, you do as Romans do. Those people that led those envoys were called apostles. It was a secular word. And Jesus, remember that the Romans were ruling the Jews when Jesus walked the earth. And he said to the disciples, you know those guys that are always trying to get us to be like Jews? Yes, you are my apostles. You are my apostle. And the word apostle means sent one. But it actually means to be sent from a place to reproduce in another place what you were sent from. And then he gave them an apostolic prayer. The only prayer, remember the disciples constantly asked Jesus, teach us to pray, teach us to pray. The only prayer he ever taught him to pray, we call the Lord's Prayer. And how does it go? Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he tells us we're seated in heavenly places. See, that's an apostolic prayer. What's the prayer? That earth would be like heaven. You're not even getting this. He said, you're my apostles, and here's your mission, that you would make earth like heaven. And in Matthew 28, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, therefore go make disciples of all nations. He didn't say make disciples in all nations. We know that's part of the call. But the great commission is to make disciples of all nations. Why? Because they're an, abast- an apostle is a cultural transformer. You can plant 500 churches, but if those churches don't help, if they don't transform the culture they're planted in, they're not apostolic. I'm not saying they're not good. I'm simply saying they're not apostolic. Okay, you got to get this. The Lord said, the modern world has never seen the true power of an apostle because they have been immersed in a pastorate. What do pastors do? Gather. But what do apostles do? They train, equip, and deploy. Now, let's go to Ezekiel's river. John, the pool of Bethesda, is a great metaphor, a picture, if you will, of a pastorate because people come to the pool to get healed. But look at Ezekiel's river. Remember, he measures a thousand cubits, and it's the water to his ankles. Two thousand to his knees. Three thousand to his waist. Four thousand a river no one can, can ford. What's the point? The further you get from the sanctuary, the deeper the water gets. W- wait, you got to get this. What's happening in Ezekiel's river? Where is the water coming from? The sanctuary. But the further you get from the sanctuary, the deeper the water is. What's the point? The greatest miracles are happening the further you get from the sanctuary. 
In other words, the goal of an apostleship is not to gather, but to train, equip, and send. We're going from coming to church to becoming the church. Are you with me? But in order for that to happen, we need to move from the governmental structure that gathers people and measures success by how many butts we put on a seat on Sunday morning. We need to, are you with me? In other words, we have goals that actually are opposed to our call. We measure success by how many people we're gathering and our calls to transform cities. Our, goal, our call is to train, equip, and deploy, but, our, but, but we measure success by how many people we gather. That is incongruent. And I just told you that the cities that have the greatest Christian church-going population have the worst social statistics. What does that tell you? That gathering people and transforming cities are not synonymous. Are you, are you getting this at all? I'm saying that we are in for a huge, epic season shift. Because we have our apostles stuck in pastorates. There are no highways to, the, to their destinies. That's why God said the modern world has never seen the true power of an apostle because apostles are in a government that's meant to gather, not train, equip, and deploy. Our whole governmental system needs to shift. It's this greatest shift as we're trying to create in Iraq and Afghanistan. In Iraq and Afghanistan, they have a dictatorship and we're trying to get a democracy. And I'm telling you that the church, I'm talking about the real church, is going through a dramatic shift. It's a shift in government. It's not a shift from a dictatorship to, to a democracy. It's a shift from a pastorate to an apostleship. And until we make that shift, there are no sidewalks to our destiny. So what happens is, is we redefine what an apostle is. I was talking to someone very famous. You would know them. For sure you know them. And he was talking about his apostolic network. Very smart man. I really respect him. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I said, if you have an apostolic network, then you must know what an apostle is. Would you tell me what an apostle is? And he goes, well, yes, uh, an apostle is a father. I said, so anyone who has, any man who has a child is an apostle? He said, no. I said, so, so... Not all fathers are apostles, but all apostles are fathers. He said, that's right. I said, so what is, what's another distinguishing mark then? And we went around and around. This is a man who has an apostolic network with hundreds of churches, quote, under him. I'm like, in what way are you apostolic? Because what's wrong with having a network? I mean, why do we have to call it apostolic? Why can't we say we have a fellowship of churches? In other words, what I'm getting at is this, is that we don't realize that when we say we're apostles and we're not, according to Revelation 2, that's not a good plan. So in order to say I'm I'm an apostle, I should at least have some idea what the word means. And let me tell you that I have a whole teaching that's 22 pages long on apostles, and I wrote a book on it, but here's the the number one theme of an apostle. If you don't transform culture, you are not apostolic. I don't mean you're not amazing, I just mean you're not apostolic. 
Because apostles, the, the, the word apostle is, is synonymous with cultural transformation. And I believe that we're called not to reflect our culture, but to transform it. God didn't say, arise and reflect. He said, arise and shine. He didn't call us to be an echo. He called us to be in a voice. Isaiah said this, all of us like sheep have gone astray. How do sheep go astray? Have you ever thought about it? He didn't say like dogs. He didn't say like cats. He said like sheep. How do sheep go astray? They watch each other's butt and hope there's a shepherd up front. Well, Mildred, we must be going the right way because a hundred butts can't all be wrong. We're accustomed to following people, not thinking. <laughs> Sorry. You use the word but here. <clears throat> what are you staring at? <laughs> All right. Well, that's what I believe. I believe. I believe. I believe we're called to transform our our nation. I believe we're called to transform nations. Listen, this is going to really, this is going to make you mad. I don't believe we're called to complain about what's going on. I don't, listen, this will really get you. I don't believe it's our president's job to change our nation. I think it's our job. Huh. It's going to get worse. I'm flying home from Spain two years ago. I'm about half asleep. You know, that's point between sleep and wake. Did I say that right? Yeah, like the twilight zone, right? That's where the Lord gives me the most stuff. You too? Because your brain's like almost off, but not all the way. And he says, I want you to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And he said, you've done the dove thing well, but you don't know anything about serpents. He says, I want you to study the ways of serpents so you can emulate their ways and undermine their purposes. And then about a few months later, well, no, this is about actually about eight months later, I'm coming to the pulpit and I'm going to share at School of Worship. And so as I come to the pulpit, I have this thing I'm going to share on worship and stuff. And the Lord says, I'm probably 10 10 feet from the pulpit, and the Lord says, before you teach, I want you to prophesy. I said, all right. To who? He said, to everybody. I said, all right. What's the word? He said, when you get to the pulpit, I'll tell you. So I get to the pulpit, and I say, here I am, you know, Lord, send me. What's the word? He said, he said the mascot, the prophetic mascot for this season is not the eagle, but it's the owl. It's not the eagle, but it's the owl. So I say that. I said, the prophetic mascot for this season is not the eagle. 
you know, you see eagles as the prophetic sign, uh, the sign of the prophetic ministry. The Lord said, it's not the eagle, it's the owl. So I prophesied that. I said, because the owl lives in the darkness. And the owl is wise. And the owl knows who's who. The owl knows who's who. See, the owl can look through the darkness and see a Rahab and know it's the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus Christ. See, and I think, so, okay, so I, let me just finish that part of the story. So I shared that, and as I'm sharing that, Jen, Jennifer Johnson runs up and she, she says, I gotta say this, I gotta say this. She grabs the mic and she said, Today, she said, a young man. He's coming to worship school, and on the way to worship school, an owl was on the road, sitting in the road, and wouldn't move. He said he pulled his car right up to the owl, and the owl sat there. So he got out of his car, and he put his hand out, and the owl got up on his shoulder, and he brought it to school that day. Okay, now, the next day, we fly to L.A. My son, Jason, and I fly to L.A., and that purity book that I shared a few minutes ago, it used to have a white cover and was called Purity, the New Moral Revolution. Well, a man, this is a long story, I'm trying to make it short. A man, you guys know what VH1 is? You shouldn't. I didn't know what VH1 was. This, the last year's star of, of the number one show on VH1 was called Second Chance at Love 2. And the, the star of that show was a Maude Givens. They called him real on the show. A black uh, African-American man who um, has a, a band. Well, that man is doing a dating show that none of us should watch. It's not, it's not Christian. It's, it's gross. There's kids in here, so I won't even describe it. It's that bad. He's the star of that show. And my attorney, my, uh, I have an attorney because we have books and we have intellectual property rights and all that. My attorney, who's a Christian, is also his attorney. My attorney flies to, oh, so, so Ahmad is talking to his attorney, and he says, I had an encounter with God, and I feel like I'm called to do something great. I'd like to do something on VH1, on my show. Something Jesus. I don't know what. Something Jesus. Well, my attorney is telling me this the next uh, three days later, and I give him my purity book. The attorney reads the purity book on the way home, and it totally rocks his world. So he goes, hey, Ahmad, why don't you read this? Ahmad reads the purity book, right? Ahmad's struggling with his sexual purity. He's got issues. He reads the purity book. It totally rocks his world. He calls the, the, his attorney, Brock, the attorney, and he says, I need to meet with this man. I want to get this on VH1. But I can't do it with the white cover. I need a black cover. I need it to be edgy. So he changed the cover to black and put sexual revolution on it. And Ahmad endorses the back. I know, a bunch of Christians have written me like, why do you have Ahmad endorsing the back? The reason I have Ahmad endorsing the back is because we're actually trying to reach people that have problems. It's a, it's a whole new strategy. Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. I'm meeting with Ahmad. We, so Jason and I fly down to meet with Ahmad because you can't just put a book on VH1. It doesn't work like that. There's got to be attorneys involved and all this stuff. 
And, and by the way, the, they end up editing the book out, so the book never ends, ends up on VH1. So that's a long that's a long story. But we're sitting with Ahmad. I've never met him before. He's you know he's got long dreads. He's got pierces and stuff and chains and black leather. You know, I'm just giving you an idea. This is Ahmad, and he's sitting across from me, him, his manager, and our attorney and Jason and I, and we're talking. This is the day after the owl thing, right? The day after the owl thing. So we start talking, and we're talking, we're talking about business and how to get the book on there and what that's going to cost and so on and so forth. Each one charges, you know, this is the whole deal. And I am looking at Ahmad, and I cannot. Sometimes when the Lord speaks to me prophetically, it comes in a picture that's superimposed over people. Or a word that's superimposed. And I see over Ahmad, prophet to the nations. Now, I know Ahmad's had some kind of encounter. I don't know if he's a Christian. I don't know what he is. He's had some kind of encounter with God. That's all I know. So, I finally, about five minutes into the meeting, I go, hey, time out, time out. I tell our attorney, stop. You're killing me. Can't do this anymore. Broxall, what's going on? I said, I said, Ahmad, I have this word for you. I don't know if you believe in prophetic words. He's like, yeah, yeah, I do. You know, I, I believe, I know something about the prophetic. I said, well, I, I have this word over you. And I saw you when you were little, when you were in your mother's womb, you almost died from some kind of disease, and now tears start flowing down his eyes. And he tells me that his mother, uh, when, he, when, she, when uh, she was about to give birth, eight months, uh, she's pregnant eight months, she ends up with this disease. It's really rare. It's, it's, like, it's only like three, four, five hundred people a year get it. It's like a really rare disease. And she almost lost him. It was a, he's a miracle baby. And my word to him is that the enemy tried to take you out in your mother's womb. I don't know what happened to you, but God saved you. Now he's crying. And I go, and God says you're called to be a prophet to the nations, and he's been giving you a sign. Now, I have no idea what the sign is, but I said, and God's been giving you a sign. As soon as I say God's been giving you a sign, now he's, you know, he's just totally being rocked. And he goes, dude, you aren't going to believe this. Now, I have not said anything about an owl, right? Nothing. That's all I've said to him. It's maybe a little bit more than that. He goes, you're not going to believe this. Three months ago, Steve and I, Steve's his manager, we're, we're in this city and we're doing this concert and we're, and we're walking down the street towards the, wherever he's doing the concert and he goes, a white owl, a white owl flies right down and almost hits us and flies off. Right? I haven't said anything about an owl. And then he says, and then he says, we're, he said, a month later, we're driving down the road in another city to do a concert and another white owl flies down and almost hits my windshield and takes off. He goes, then, he said, last month, he said, I'm walking down a road, and a white owl comes and flies another white owl in another city, three cities, three white owls, comes and flies around me. So he goes, I don't know what it means, but I know that God is calling me. I give him the word, and I go, it's a white owl because you're called to purity, and it's an owl because you're called to darkness. And I start prophesying, and then I tell him what happened the day before. Now, you got to get this. About four months after this, I'm telling a mod story. I'm telling the, the owl story in Australia, actually in New Zealand. And I have my iPhone in my pocket. And while I'm, I get to the part about Ahmad, and I start telling just what I shared with you, I start telling the owl story, and while I'm telling the owl story... My phone vibrates. I forgot to turn it off. My phone vibrates. I have a text message. 
So I take my phone, and it's, you know, it, uh, an iPhone keeps vibrating until uh, you stop it. So I take my phone, and I set it on the pulpit, and I'm going to turn it off, and I'm trying to be discreet about it, right? I turn the phone over to turn it off, and I notice, as I'm preaching, I look down, and it's a mod. A mod's te- just texting me while I'm telling his story. So I'm kind of like, so I look down at the phone, and it says this. He texts me this message. Hey, I just saw my fourth owl just flew over me right now. Well, I'm telling the Ahmad story, another owl flies over his head. What's the point? The point is, is that God has called us to be a river that leaves the sanctuary. It goes into the deepest, darkest places of the planet. And like Daniel, that we learn how to minister to people who we don't agree with, but that we love. And listen, let me, I'll, I'll be quick. In the days of Daniel, Daniel was never called a prophet. Do you know that? This means yes, this means no. <laughs> listen, I know, I don't want to bore you. I'm almost done though. Listen to this. Daniel chapter 4. The king has a dream. He dreams of, which one is this? He dreams about the tree. Everyone tries to interpret it. Verse 8. But finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God. You didn't get that. Daniel has taken on the name of the king's God. Because the king is a polytheist. He believes in multiple gods. Daniel's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not the name of the three boys who went into the fire. That's the name the king gave them, and the king gave them the name of his gods. Plural. Are you with me? Listen to this. But finally Daniel came in before me whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in him is a spirit of the holy gods, plural. And I related the dream, O O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians. Are you getting that? He's He's not a prophet. He's a magician, a sorcerer. You go, like, was Daniel a sorcerer? No, but the king thought he was. Did Daniel, was Daniel a polytheist? No, but the king thought he was. What I'm getting at is this. If we're going to move into darkness, we're going to have to learn to customize without compromise. He won't eat the king's food. He won't eat the king's food. He won't defile himself. He prays three times a day. But he doesn't bother to tell the king that he's serving the God, not God's. The king has a dream, a bad dream about himself. Selah. Selah means think about it. It's not Daniel who has the bad prophecy. It's the king who has the bad prophecy for himself. Daniel has to interpret the prophecy. What does he say? This is very interesting. O king, Daniel says, Then Daniel, whose name is Belchelzar, was appalled, for while his thoughts alarmed him, the king responded and said, O Belchelzar, do not let your dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belchelzar replied, My lord, 
of only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. What's the point? This guy is a POW. He's been made a eunuch. His parents have probably been killed by, by Nebuchadnezzar. His nation's been destroyed. His temple's been torn down. What does he say to the guy who did all that? I wish this dream was about your enemies and not about you. What would happen if we actually loved people? It's a whole new strategy. It's a whole new strategy. What would happen if we actually loved the people that we don't agree with? I have a confession to make. I'm in love with President Obama. Now, I know what you think I said. You think I said I agree with him. I don't. I don't agree with most of his policies. But the Lord said, if you love him, I'll let you influence him. See, the problem is, is that we've grown up as denomination, we've grown up in denominationalism. In denominationalism, we gather when we agree and we divide when we disagree. We're called Protestants. The word comes from the word protester. We didn't protest social justice. We protested, we protested interpretation of the scripture. And we've been doing it ever since. So when we don't agree with someone, we, can't, we don't have permission to be their friend. And we're moving out of Protestantism into apostleships. Where we gather because we have the same father, not because we agree doctrinally. And once we do that, then a spirit of revelation can come on us and we can... See, I don't have permission, as a denomination, as a Protestant, I don't have permission to, be, to have a relationship with a homosexual unless I have an agenda to convert them. And you don't think that they know I'm trying to convert them? Come on. That's like stepping on a car lot and not thinking the car, car salesman is trying to convert you. Trying to sell you a car. And then when, when you step on a car lot and he goes, oh, I love your jeans. Awesome. You could be dead ugly and he's like, oh, you're looking so good today. Everybody knows the game. They're playing a game. It's a game. You don't think that people who don't know God understand the game? They know what you're doing. They know what I'm doing. They are so tired of manipulation. What would happen if you just actually love people because you do? Jesus said, these signs will follow those who believe. You know what happens when a, when a church becomes powerless? Signs and wonders begin to be something that you can nail to a stick and take to a gay parade. A sign that makes you wonder. See, part of the struggle is we've tr- it's, it's really hard to be ready for the jungle when you've trained in the zoo. We have domesticated the lion of the tribe of Judah and wondered why we're completely irrelevant to the world. if we actually loved the people with no agenda? So, said, Mom, we need to lead people to Christ. Well, listen, I'm going to tell you something. If your life isn't enough of a message for them to see a difference, you don't have a message anyway. I'm not saying that you shouldn't say something. I'm just saying when you talk and it doesn't line up with your life, you're ruining your message anyway. In Daniel chapter 6 is a great chapter of, uh, of Daniel uh, serving um, Darius. You know King Darius? It's the king right before Cyrus who lets the people go. It's, and, and you know that story. Daniel is, is, God's favor is so on Daniel that it says that he's ten times better than all the other surf straps, all the other magicians, and all the other codgers. And pretty soon they're all jealous of him. 
And they go, listen, we can't find anything wrong with Daniel, so we're going to have to do is do something that we're going to have to somehow figure out a way to make it illegal for him to serve as God. You know the story. They go to the king. They say to the king, hey, for 30 days, no one can worship anyone but you because they know that Daniel worships some god. They don't know who it is. And, and the king makes a decree. Daniel runs upstairs, opens the doors towards Jerusalem like he does three times a day and prays, and he ends up in the lion's den, right? And we know why the lions didn't eat him. He's 96 years old. I'm sure the lion's like, dude, that looks like beef jerky. You can forget it. It says this. It says that King Darius, read it. It's in chapter 6. Read it for yourself. It says in King Darius, he says, fasted all night. That's what I do. It's a royal fast. I fast all night. In the morning, I break fast. I'm only eating, listen, I'm fasting 300 days a year. I'm only eating about three hours a day. It says Darius fasted all night. He gets up early and it says, and he, and he made haste or he ran to the lion's den. And when he's a long ways away, in other words, he's stressed. He yells, Daniel, was your God whom you served day and night able to save you? And he hears these words coming from the den. O king, live forever. The guy who threw him in the lion's den. O king. See, you think that Daniel changed Babylon because he prayed and because he prophesied. I propose to you that he changed Babylon because he loved the people who he didn't agree with. You better get ready, because the river's coming out from the sanctuary. It's coming out, and it's going to get deeper, and the greatest miracles are going to be done the furthest from the sanctuary. And I'm telling you, God's not sending out his eagles. He's sending out his owls. I have a feeling that we're going to be redefined, <laughs> that the world's going to redefine us so they can embrace us. I'll finish with the story. I was coming home and, um, on a plane, and I was sitting next to this man, and I started just to have this you know, vision of him, uh, not uh, with my eyes, in my mind, a, a, a vision of the mind about this man who I'd never met before. And so I, I, I never say, or very rarely say, hey, I'm a Christian. As soon as you say that, they're like, oh, I know what you want. Ten Commandments. You know, we think it's our job to protect the law. It's kind of funny, you know. God spent thousands of years in the box, and he got out of the box, and we create a bigger one and try to, and don't understand, it's still a box. You didn't get that. I mean, we were rent-a-cops guarding the Ark of the Covenant that Jesus left a long time ago. It's time to forget. We are not the guardians of the law. I think gospel means good news. I don't know. What do you think? So I'm sitting next to this man, and so I say to him, hey, um, sometimes I have uh, visions. My spirit guide gives me visions. You know, I have a spirit guide. He's, he's the spirit of truth. And he gives me visions. 
of people, and I'd like to share one with you. So he says, yes, go ahead. So I start sharing with him, and the guy gets completely rocked, and he goes, oh, you're a psychic. And I'm not a psychic, of course. I want to make it clear. Like, I don't tell people I'm a psychic. I don't identify myself with psychics. I understand the difference. And I'm going to say, no, I'm not a psychic. I'm, I have a gift of prophecy. But before I, I, so I start to say that, and the Lord says, no, that's close enough. He says, I'm a psychic. He goes, oh, you're a psychic. And I'm going to say, no, I'm not a psychic. The Lord says, no, that's close enough. Because when he says the word psychic, he doesn't mean what we mean by it. We mean evil, wrong spirit. He, he thinks information coming from an illogical place, but accurate. That's the box he has. And the, and the Lord says, close enough. He has a word in which, in, he has a word for what he thinks you're doing. He has a place for you to put your word. So as we go, I give him this word. He gets totally rocked. And as we're, as, as we're flying along, I tell him that Jesus is my spirit guide. He's the chief of all the spirits, and he's my spirit guide. And he lets me do spiritual readings. He totally was like, fine with it. I'm on a plane. I think I told this story here. I'm on a plane uh, uh, three years ago, flying back from Pennsylvania. Maybe it was four. Flying back from Pennsylvania, and we get seats really late. So Kathy and I are not together in, in seats. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sitting in, uh, there's me, and then two men sit next to me in the window. And she's like three rows back, but she has an aisle seat. So there's like three big guys sitting in a row. And we're all crammed together. You know, muscle guys, muscle men. So I turn to them, when we, get, when we take off, I turn to the man next to me. And I say, sir, my wife has a really good seat three rows back on an aisle. If you'd like to change seats with her, that would be great. He goes, No. Like that. Did I tell a story here before? He goes, no. And then I thought that I saw him, you know, through my peripheral vision, grab the guy's hand next to him and rub his leg. Now, you know, it's not cool to do this. We all know that, right? International uncool. But I just shifted my chair a little bit so my peripheral vision moves over. And I see him rubbing each other's leg. And I say, oh my God, I'm sitting next to hum- two homosexuals. Now, I was reading a book called Developing an Emotionally Healthy Church. And when I picked up the book, I thought the guy at the end by the w- window, I thought he went earlier, but I didn't put it all together. So I said to the Lord, I said, oh my God, I'm sitting next to two homosexuals for an eight-hour plane ride. And the Lord said, well, you've sat next to people who are living together, and that didn't seem to bother you. That's what he said to me. He said, because he said, I had been preaching on grace at the conference I'd left. He said, why don't you try some? Now, you have to be careful when you're flying, and the Lord corrects you, because the Bible says, lo, I am with you always. <laughs> don't say anything about high. Now, the guy, I notice, as time goes on, I notice that the guy next to the window has a militant homosexual spirit on him. I mean, I could just feel it off of him. You know what I'm talking about, right? I could just feel it on him. 
And so I, t- so I figured, well, I better make up with God. So I have a, a, a bag of cashews, and I say to the guy next to me, I say, my name is Chris. He goes, Tony. Like this, Tony. I said, and then he goes, Frank. I said, would you like some cashews? The guy next to me, Tony. Tony, would you like some cashews? No. Frank goes, I'll take some. Tony goes, I'll take some too. So they eat my cashews. And fly, we're flying along, and, and, then, and so, you know, it kind of loosens up a little bit. And Frank is telling sexual, homosexual jokes, dirty homosexual jokes, as we're flying along. And I keep saying, Frank, shut up. Frank, get a life, man. Frank. So finally I say to Frank, I pick up my book, Developing an Emotionally Healthy Church. I say, Frank, you need to read this book. He says, I don't like the church. They scare me. I said, they scare me too, but they pay me to go. <laughs> so now, now Frank's kind of like, ha, 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 ha. He's still telling dirty jokes, and he pulls out a whole grocery bag of food. And so we're eating his food, and we, you know, Frank's still telling dirty jokes. And you know, you, you know how it is when you're trying not to laugh if some of them are really funny? You're like, you don't want them to think that you're all right with it, but you're like... <laughs> You've been there before. You're like, that, that is really funny, but it's not okay. <laughs> you know that tension you feel like you don't want to laugh. You're like, no, that's so bad. So I'm like, Frank, shut up. Now, now I'm yelling at him, shut up, Frank. And he's like, I got this other one. And I'm like. So we're kind of like having a bonding moment. So about two hours into the trip, I close my eyes to go to sleep. And as I close my eyes, I have a vision of Frank. I have a vision of Frank, really clear vision of Frank. So I turn to Frank and I say, hey, Frank, sometimes, and he, he knows I'm a Christian because by now he knows I'm a pastor. I read this book. And so he's like, oh, I don't want, you know. We figured out that we're on the opposite side of tracks. And, and so I say, hey, Frank, sometimes God gives me visions for people, which I hardly ever say God, but he's already connected. I say, sometimes God gives me visions for people, and I have a vision for you, and I'd like to share it. And he go, I said, can I share it? Can I share it with you? He goes, just like this, I guess so. I'm sure he's thinking, Ten Commandments, going to hell, lake of fire, Frank. You know, <laughs> you know, you know, you know. He's expecting me to sell him the car. You know what I'm saying. He's, he's got it figured out. I go, well, here's the vision. And Tony, Tony's sitting next to me. Tony's like, if you hurt my friend, I'm going to, you know. So I said, Frank, I said, I saw you on a seashore. And you had an easel and a painting. There was, and you were painting with a, with a uh, you know, you had an easel and you were painting seascapes. And when I started to sit, and I, say, and, I, and I saw you painting seascapes, and as I said that, Tony next to me, and Frank starts to cry. This is a big, tough, militant homosexual. He starts to cry. He's choking back tears. Tears are running down his eyes. And Tony freaks out. And he goes, dude, that's what Frank does as a hobby. He paints seascapes. I said, yeah, and I got more. I said, the vision changed, and I saw, Frank, I saw you, and you, were, and you had a potter's wheel, and you were b- making this beautiful pottery. Now, Tony is like, he can't hardly help black. And Frank is now, 
openly crying. I said, and you were making this beautiful pottery, and then the vision changed again. It was longer than this, I'm doing, shortening it. The vision changed again, and you, were, you, had, you had stone, and you were sculpturing, and the Lord said, the anointing of Michelangelo is upon you. And the Lord is going to make you famous, and you're going to be in galleries, and he's freaking out. As soon as I stop, Tony says, we just, Frank just bought a potter's wheel a month ago. And two months ago, he just started sculpturing stone. And he's awesome at it. So and we have this connect, right? So now I have a word for, for Tony. I'm thinking, we'll make him sweat. I close my eyes, and I'm thinking, I wait about 15 minutes. So finally, I open my eyes, and I turn to Tony, and I'm going to say, hey, Tony, I have a vision, I have a word for you. But before I can get it out, I go, Tony, I have, and when I get to, I have, he goes, just give it to me. He goes, just give it to me. I said, I saw God anoint your hands. When I said anoint, he goes, he looks at me like, what does anoint mean? And I go, oh, yeah, that's a Christian word. I saw the Lord put a special gift in your hands. And, you, and it's been there since you were a little boy. And you can fix anything. You don't even know how you know what's wrong with it, but you can fix anything. You can fix toasters and computers and cars. And I'm going like that. Now Frank is freaking out. And I give him this whole word about this anointing on his hands to fix things like they had the, like the skilled workers in Moses' tabernacle could could carve you know, gold and silver and fabric. He had a special gift to repair things, and he didn't even know how he knew what was wrong with it, but as soon as he touched something, he knew what was wrong with it. When I finished speaking, Frank goes, you're not going to believe this. You are not going to believe this. Our front yard looks like a junkyard. He says, it's the biggest conflict we have. There are cars and washing machines and dryers and junk out in the front yard everywhere. And inside of our house, we have computers and toasters and, and there's crap everywhere that, 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 that Tony fixes because Tony can fix anything. When we get off the plane, they both give me a holy hug in San Francisco. <laughs> both tears coming down their eyes. What happened? They found out that God... See, it's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. See, what, what happened? See, the owl can see through the darkness. can see past homosexuality. Home, see, there's no such thing as a homosexual. There's only people that have, carry that name as an alias because God didn't make homosexuals. I refuse to relate to someone according to their, an alias name that God did not give them. But they say, I'm a Buddhist. I'm like, you, you may say you're a Buddhist, but God doesn't call you a Buddhist. God doesn't call you a Mason. God doesn't call you a Mormon. God calls you a son, a daughter of God. I will not relate to people according to an alias name that God did not give them. But what happens? The owl can look through the darkness. The owl can look past their pain, can look past their titles they've given themselves, the, their agendas, their anger, and go, inside there is a treasure. Isaiah 45, 3, hidden treasures in secret places of darkness. And what happens? Everywhere the river goes, everything lives. And listen, even people who don't get in the river, the trees are being influenced by the river even though they refuse to get in. They bear fruit 12 times a year. 
That's the nations are being influenced by the river. I have a sense, I'll finish with this, that Sunday morning services are going to become Holy Spirit terrorist training centers. Where we train and equip people how to destroy the works of the devil. And we teach people how to love people they don't agree with without an agenda. I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if we could actually love someone and not think, okay, oh, I got I to gotta get him to pray the prayer. You know the prayer? Can you imagine Jesus saying, if you want to be my disciple, raise your hand. Pray this prayer. I don't have any problem with praying a prayer, just as long as we don't confuse the wedding with the marriage. You can have a great wedding. doesn't mean you're going to have an awesome marriage. We've confused the wedding with the marriage. I don't care if they stand on their head to receive Christ or they jump around or they spin around or that they come in progressively. There's another thought. All I know is Jesus said, follow me. He didn't say, raise your hand, pray a prayer, repeat this prayer. Do you believe these four things? Dude, I know people who believe those four things and I, I can tell you, they, they are not believers. They're not born-again believers, but they repeated the prayer, and they believed those four things, and they still act like hell. They weren't converted, because converted people act differently. (laughs) Selah. I feel like I'm supposed to commission y'all. All All y'all, they say in Texas. The country of Texas. Because I, I, I know the Lord called this place to be an, an Antioch, an apostolic church. This is a great shift going on here. Is that apostolic church sent not just, to, not just to minister to Las Vegas, but to transform Las Vegas and to be a light to the whole world. This is an apostolic city. People come here, people come here to be influenced. Listen, listen, listen to what I'm saying. San Francisco... Las Vegas, Hollywood, apostolic cities. I'm telling you, there are apostolic cities that the anointing has been stolen by the devil and we need to get it back. People come to these cities, to those cities, to be influenced and those three cities are influencing the whole world. And all we need to do is take the high mountain and we're going to do it through love, through power, right? We're going to do it through love and power that flow simultaneously. They flow together into one river. And we're going to begin to like people that we'd never agree with. And we're going to stop the whole agenda thing, and people are actually going to come into the kingdom because they feel loved, not because they feel like you've got some kind of thing you've got to do. You've got to sell them something so you can tell your friends about it. And we take the people who have the biggest names and put them on stage so everybody knows we got what we call us a big one. And we, and we exploit them. When Paul Taurus... When Saul got saved, they sent him to Tars for 14 years and wouldn't let him preach. What do we do? Dude, we'd never do that. We're like, come up here. When the apostles found out they were, that he was preaching and, and they were trying to kill him, what did they do? They hit him for 14 years. And then when the Gentiles started getting saved, they're like, who's that? What's the name of that guy, that kid? Oh, yeah, Saul. We need to go get him. Remember that word that was over him? He's going to be a light to the Gentiles. We need to get him back here. 14 years later, first thing we do is put him on stage, exploit them. 
We've got to start being fathers instead of a global orphanage. Stop thinking like a business and start thinking like a family. Okay, stand up. Well, I said I was quitting 20 minutes ago. (laughs) We had the circle. It was bad weather. Holy Spirit, we just pray. Okay, put your hands up. Okay, I need to get serious. Okay, put your hands up. I feel like we're, there's some special something happening right now that we're supposed to commission you. Like in, um, in school ministry, we, we get a sword and we, we knight, Bill and I knight each student. It's a, it's a prophetic declaration that we've, we've put the sword on your shoulders. We, on your shoulders, on the government of God, rest on your shoulders and we knight you with the word of God, the sword of the spirit. And we're serious about it. People get rocked and they fall down. They crawl out. I mean, some of them don't. But, I mean, we're, ser- I mean, we're not just doing it. It's like a prophetic act. We're commissioning people. And I feel like tonight there's a special commissioning. I don't mean there's anything special about me. I just mean the night. There's something special about the night. I really feel like the Lord is, I feel like I'm a, de- I'm a declarer. I'm a proclaimer of, of an epic shift that's happening t- tonight. That this eagle to owl thing is happening in this church and that you guys are going to begin to reach places you've never ever been able to reach before. And the Lord's going to actually give you a strategy, if you will, a a shrewd strategy. Where you begin to think in ways you've never thought before because your core values are changing towards the people you're supposed to reach. And that you're going to train and equip with deployment in mind instead of train and equip with Christians in mind and wonder why you're irrelevant to the people you're really trying to reach. So Holy Spirit, I just pray, just in obedience to you, that you would, that you would commission, that you would co-mission, that you would send these on a mission in which you join them to reach a dark world, to touch this, the the, the spheres of influence of the world to touch the Nebuchadnezzars, to touch the pharaohs. How many know Pharaoh's dreaming again? To, you want to know what Pharaoh's dreaming? Watch movies. Not all movies. Use wisdom. Come on. Pharaoh's dreaming again. He doesn't know what it means. Daniels and Josephs are going to interpret him. Lord, we just release the, the, the mantle of Joseph, the mantle of Daniel, the mantle of Peter. You know what I'm trying to say. Lord, the mantle to reach the world. That the commentary in Las Vegas five years from now would be that these men who've turned the world upside down, they've come here. Lord, let us love the casino owners. I mean, actually, lo- I, don't, I just mean don't pretend. I mean, actually love them actually work to figure out a way that we could benefit them, that we could bring out the best in them. We could call out the treasure that's in them. Lord, I, just, I break that denominational spirit that causes us to want to divide with people and, and puts justice, it puts being right over being together. Lord, help us to love the unlovely. Help us to be a light in the darkness, not ten miles from it. Lord, help us to make disciples of nations and teach them what you taught us about love and forgiveness and honor. Help us to be a noble people. Father, thank you for this night. Amen. Thank you very much.